Welcome to the Scholars and Storytellers podcast, a podcast brought to you by the Center for Scholars and Storytellers at UCLA. This episode, recorded on February 14th, 2020, is about the representation of boys and men in media, featuring Dr. Caroline Heldman and Sasha Palladino. Dr. Heldman is the executive director of the Representation Project, a professor at Occidental College, and the senior research advisor for the Gina Davis Institute on Gender in Media. Sasha Palladino is an Emmy-nominated showrunner and writer. He is the executive producer of Disney's Mira, Royal Detective, and creator of Disney's Miles from Tomorrowland. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy. Do you want to start talk about what you do? Oh, thanks, Sasha. <laughs> I just figured out. <laughs> I'd throw it to you. <laughs> that was quick. I tried to be quicker, but it didn't happen. Oh, sorry. Um, so I am the executive director of uh, the Representation Project, and it was an organization started by Jennifer Siebel Newsom, who is now the first partner of California. And back in uh, 2008, you know, she sat down and was looking at media and said, wait a minute, these stereotypes are really damaging for girls. And she produced the film Misrepresentation in 2011. Um, I was a thought partner with her on that because it touched upon a lot of my research. Um, and then she, as she was traveling around with Misrepresentation, uh, folks were saying, hey, what about boys? You know, media representations are really damaging for boys and men as well. And so she uh, produced and directed the film The Mask You Live In in 2015 that launched this national conversation about masculinity and toxic masculinity um, and now has a third film out. So that's one of the hats I wear and we're really pushing, uh, using media in order to uh, push against damaging gender norms and stereotypes. Um, I also work for the Gina Davis Institute. Um, I run the research there and um, Gina Davis, as you know, is an Academy uh, Award winning actor um, who has started her uh, institute in 2004 when no one was talking about this topic, right? Nobody was really talking. We were talking about it in academia but nobody was doing advocacy around this work. And so uh, Gina came in and decided that she was gonna do research-driven advocacy and also go into the studios, go and speak with the content creators um, with the idea that you know these are not bad people, they just think their content is better or, or more inclusive than it is. So let's provide the research and then everything will shift. And she was right. Uh, if you look at it, um, we have now achieved gender parity uh, in 2011, uh, gender parity in kids' television when it comes to female protagonists and screen time and speaking time. Um, and I will preempt a little bit of data uh, from 2019 um, that Gina has actually effectively shifted uh, kids uh, in family uh, films as well. Wow. So it happened in kids television in 2011 and in 2019 parody in terms of kids films. Well, so and I, can, I can speak to, sorry to interrupt, but I can yeah. speak to the kids TV part, her research and I'm sure some, some of the stuff you've been a part of um, has really impacted the work we do as someone who makes kids TV. It's, we're always eager to see like the latest information, the latest report, what are they doing? And um, it's become such a like go-to resource for us, the people who make TV, kids TV. So thanks for, ah, for doing it. It. Wonderful to hear, right yeah. there. That's why we do the work. Yeah. So that's what I do. Um, what do you do? Sasha? Um, How did you get here? What have you worked on? So I'm a writer and showrunner um, for Kids TV. Um, I started um, as a writer. I've always been interested in where the arts meet kids. Um, I went to a performing arts high school in New York City, uh, the Fame School. Oh, I was going to um, say, was it, it was the Fame, fame school? school? And what was um, your, what were your I was arts? a drama major. Um, we did not dance on the tables, um, but we 
did actually have to take gym for all four years instead of dance, which I think, um, I, I mean, sorry, other way around. We, we never took gym. We were able to take dance instead, which I, from what I've heard about regular high schools, having kids taking gym, we were pretty lucky. Um, and that probably affected some of my views as well. But in general, just um, as I got older, I realized that the arts were more uh, interesting to me when kids were involved. So I was doing theater. Um, I ended up doing some kids theater. Um, I was doing my own writing. I was working as a teaching artist in New York City, going into um, schools and doing like uh, like workshops to get kids ready to see Broadway shows, kids who had never been to the theater before. I did a workshop on Shakespeare with a bunch of kids in the South mm -hmm. Bronx, like things where we were using the arts to communicate with kids and um, just saw how meaningful that was. And then a job came up at Nickelodeon um, at the show Blue's Clues, and that was mm -hmm. my first job in TV, and um, that sort of set the path. It just was this merging of, of working with kids, writing, creating. Um, and so after working there as with the writers, I became a writer on that show and then went on to write on other shows, become a producer, and then um, created my own show, which was called Miles from Tomorrowland uh, on Disney Junior, about a family in outer space. And, um, and now, a yeah, family in outer a space. family in outer space. <laughs> um, but it was great because um, it gave me a chance to sort of work out what I thought the ideal roles within a family should be mm. um, based on kind of my personal experience but also just what I saw in the media and what I'd seen on kids TV before um, so that was really amazing unique opportunity and also to think about the future the, the the show takes place in the future so it was like what what do I hope the family of the future will look like um, and 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 those interactions figuring those out and now I'm executive producing show running a new show called Mira Royal Detective also on Disney Junior um, and it's set in an India inspired land um, and that premieres next month in March well, tell us about that, the process of creating an animated show. So you have this new show. You mm -hmm. said it's India-inspired. Mm -hmm. So there have got to be, as you're going in and, and taking um, or basing something on another culture, mm -hmm. what are some of the challenges there, and how does that process work? That's a great question. So um, this show isn't, isn't one that I specifically created. Um, it was in, it had been worked on by um, a great writer named Becca Topol, and she um, had been working on it with Disney. And what we, um, when I came aboard, we were trying to, to sort of structure it into a TV show that would last um, over however many seasons. And um, our, our, one of our goals was to really find a way to portray this culture, South, South Asian culture, um, in a way that was thoughtful, sensitive, um, both um, would be recognizable to people of that culture, but also create an accessible entry point to people who are not from that culture. Because as we know, um, media is such a powerful tool to introduce people to new things, new cultures. And um, for a show on Disney, um, we know that these shows uh, you know, reach such a wide audience. I think this show and like Miles from Tomorrowland is going to be on in something like 150 countries. Mm -hmm. So it's a big responsibility to think about um, what these images that we're putting into these shows are, and um, but it's also a privilege, you know. It's 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 a great thing. It's I feel so lucky that I get to do that, and um, it's why we spend so much time on the details, like mm -hmm. like every interaction between two members of a family, between a husband and a wife, between a mother and a son, between a father and a daughter. Like what is in that, and what can we do to make it both realistic, but also um, hopefully 
idealistic in a little bit of a way. What do we want to see from those relationships? Well, let's talk about idealism for a moment. Yeah. So you actually did create um, Miles from Tomorrowland, mm -hmm. um, and you talked a bit about this, about this is the family you would want to see in the future. Um, can you talk about the creation of that idea yeah. and also how the importance of having kind of utopian ideas <laughs> so that we can see other ways of living? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, that's what I love about science fiction because we can um, make what we want to see come true. Um, and that's one great thing about animation, too. We can create these worlds, and Anything we literally did yeah. um, in that case. But it was kind of a mix of trying to find a relatable family um, situation that kids at home would recognize and also a sort of ideal. Um, so in that case, what I really wanted, it was really important from, from the beginning for me to have the mom. So there's a mom, a dad, and um, a daughter and a son. And uh, I wanted it to be. Um, uh, a situation where the mom was the captain of the ship. Um, it just felt like something I hadn't seen before in science fiction. Uh, it was our spin on Lost in Space, Star Trek, those kinds of things. But and Star Trek is a great example of um, kind of idealism in action and creating a, an incredibly diverse situation. And um, and you know they did break a lot of ground. But I thought this was just something I hadn't seen. The idea of a um, a family who's working together in space and the mom is really driving driving things. So the mom is the captain of the ship. Um, everyone knows that, everyone recognizes that. But it was also really important that the dad did not kind of fall by the wayside mm -hmm. as a result. There's mm -hmm. sort of these tropes, and I, I think we'll probably get into this a little more later, of the male being um, sort of like the comic relief or the, the husband is kind of a doofus. Or bumbling. He, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and, and I, I had from the beginning wanted the dad to be an inventor, just fit with a lot of stories. Um, and, and the easy thing to do would have been to make him really inept and like all of his inventions don't work. And that was sort of like the cliche way to go. Mm -hmm. um, so I didn't want to take away the comedy. So the challenge for us, for the writers, was figuring out how do we create a really interesting dynamic between these characters where the mom is solidly in charge, but the dad is not emasculated by that in any way. Um, and we don't play that for humor, but we just kind of, um, you know, like, portray hopefully a realistic marriage, but also a realistic partnership, if that makes sense. Absolutely, and, and the kids as well are do not fit into stereotypical gender roles. How did you come up with ideas for that, and how did issues of masculinity come up in that? That's a great question. So we, um, from the beginning, wanted to sort of shake things up. I had done a lot of reading about um, the US uh, lagging behind in the sciences, and I wanted to make sure that we had really strong role models for as young scientists. Um, and so it was really important to me that Loretta, the sister, was a scientist, and we had been in touch with Google. Um, they had this real initiative to get more girls into coding, and so that was very inspiring in terms of making her um, uh, a coder. And we worked with female engineers from Google, and they gave us a lot of feedback, and that was great. Um, so that was just sort of to sort of raise the profile of girls in science. But again, I wanted to make sure there was a balance. And with Miles, um, I wanted him to be adventurous, um, curious, and uh, also really sensitive. I think partly because I was such a sensitive kid, um, I wanted him to have that side. Fully human, right? <laughs> exactly, human. and I think that's something that's really important, something we talk about in this tip sheet, which is, um, you know, show boys with multiple sides, you know? Right. Everyone 
contains multitudes. And, um, and so even in an animated cartoon, we want to show that as much as possible. So you've just laid out the template for essentially creating this utopic space, right, where gender norms and roles, which are tend to be pretty limiting and damaging to boys and men and, and to girls and women, you laid out a, where you create a space where you can imagine different possibilities. I'm wondering, one last question about the show and, and your work more broadly. Um, how did research come into this process? You had mentioned the Gina Davis Institute, but mm -hmm. maybe some other research. And sure. How do you use that in this process? Well, research is a really big part of every every show I've worked on um, in different ways. Um, preschool TV is extremely dependent on research, um, both in the creation of the show. So for example, Miles from Tomorrowland, which is set in space, we had a NASA advisor who was giving us um, feedback, giving us ideas. Um, for Mira, Royal Detective, we have a cultural consultant who makes sure we're getting all the cultural details right. Um, and that's a big part of it. But in a bigger sense, a lot of these shows also do um, qualitative research where we bring the stories into classrooms um, and test them out with kids and see what their responses are. So we actually make a storybook of the of the episode before it's been finished. Um, it's created with art, about 10 panels of art, and we and we have a, a, Disney has a research team that brings them into preschools. And then we get um, detailed feedback on what worked, what didn't work, what kids was it found appealing, what they didn't find appealing. So, um, so it's really, I, I like to say that making kids TV, at least the way I do it, is a real mix of art and science. Mm -hmm. um, because there's the creative side, figuring out what these characters, who they are, who they want to be, who they wish they were. Um, but also there's the science of what we know works for kids. What, um, you know, how there's so much amazing research out there about child development. And I've been lucky enough to work with a lot of child development experts over the years who've taught me so much about that. Hi, listeners. We hope that you're enjoying this episode of the Scholars and the Storytellers podcast. If you like what you're hearing, please rate and review us and share it with your friends. Your support is greatly appreciated. Now, back to the conversation. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your background and what led you to this area of research. Uh -huh. So uh, I'm a political scientist by training. My PhD is in political science with a focus on women in politics and looking at how gender structures notions of women's leadership and power. And the, the big kind of uh, upshot of my research in the past 20 years has been that uh, Americans have a pretty deep-seated hatred of power-seeking women. And I mean men and women alike. And I know that's a big statement, but every time a woman seeks power, um, her opinion, you know, polls will decline. And I just think about, you know, all of the calls, for example, for Michelle Obama to run for political office. The moment at which she did, she uh, put her name in the hat would be the moment at which we would no longer love her. And that's actually how women in leadership works. And so it's so heartening just to go back to your show, Miles from Tomorrowland, looking at, at you putting, you know, the mother in charge and normalizing women's leadership. So um, I actually thought I was going to go back and work in policy and politics because that's where I started. But during um, my PhD work and after I realized that um, while it takes, well, if you want to shift the culture, it takes lots of different institutions, right? It takes educational institutions, it takes policy and politics, but if I was going to put all of my eggs in one basket, the most powerful institution when it comes to bringing about shift in, in our culture, um, it would be media. Uh, media, you know, tells us about um, who we should love, how we should love, what our values are, what work we should be engaged in. Uh, media has a profound effect on 
on, on the world. And so I got into this work because um, I, after many years of looking at power and how it functions and operates, uh, landed at media being the most powerful when it comes to shaping hearts and minds. And I believe that is actually the biggest shift, in, the, the biggest possibility for shift in our culture. I totally agree. Yeah, um, in a, not exactly the same way, but um, I started out doing theater, which I loved, but I, uh, partly because I was doing it on such a small scale, it was just, there was something about the, the limited number of people I was reaching right, with the stuff exactly I made. That. And once I started getting into TV, I realized the, the megaphone that it was and, and, yeah. the, and, and the way that, um, as we know, stories can fold in these incredible messages without being preachy or teachy. Um, you know, I also spent time as a teacher, but um, this felt like a way to reach people in sort of a deeper, um, more profound way. And I think that reflected certain movies and TV shows that affected me when I was a kid. I'm sure there are, are there any that affected you that you feel like are still with you in terms of representation? Mm -hmm. Well, oddly enough, I was raised Pentecostal evangelical. I was homeschooled and I wasn't allowed to watch uh, media content. And so um, as a young adult, it was actually, I entered it with pretty fresh eyes. And so um, I, I enter it from a, an outsider perspective, if mm. you will. Yeah. Um, I have plenty of shows now that I am, you know, binge streaming um, that have affected my life for sure. <laughs> um, but, you know, having, having uh, media, entertainment media specifically, um, feel like it's simply entertaining you, I think that's the power of it, right? And how many times have people told you, oh, turn off your brain? Well, you can't turn off your brain when you're watching this. And more importantly, kids can't turn off their brain because they don't even really know what they're being exposed to. So well before they're conscious of being conscious, they're being told what the society values. They're being told who the society values. Um, and I just to go back to something I started earlier, right? It tells you what what jobs value mm -hmm. are valuable. It well, tells you homemaking is less valuable and working in the yeah. public, you know, private sector um, where you're making money is more valuable. It, well, and, a, and, a, and, and a great e example of that in kids TV and this story has been told before but my friend Chris Nee who created Doc McStuffins <sighs> yes. which has had such a huge impact on kids and adults um, had a great story about how um, after watching that show which is about a girl who's a doctor for her toys and her mother's a doctor in the show um, a boy after watching the show asked his parents um, can, can boys be doctors too? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think yeah. that's like such a huge statement on how profound these messages are right. to kids and um, normalizing it uh, can have a huge impact. Right, and I would say for adults, Grey's Anatomy, or you know, how many women in my life, young women in my life, say, "Oh, I watched this show about doctors, and that's why I'm going into medicine." Um, right. Or you know, something as, as simple as, "Oh, I watched a show and I realized, oh, you could have a family life." And you could be in STEM, right? Mm. And at the Gina Davis Institute, we've done a lot of work um, with uh, Lyda Hill, and we've in in terms of girls and representations of STEAM or STEM, mm. um, we put the A in there as well. I, I'm um, a big fan of the A. Yeah, as of well. the A, the arts, right? The digital arts in particular, getting more girls into that, and we find that you know about 30% of uh, scientists. Are, are women in popular culture. And so that underrepresentation, while it's gone up, we still have a lot of work to do. Because mm -hmm. if that little boy looks at Doc McStuffins and asks, can I be a doctor too? That means that uh, this deluge of images where it's been primarily boys in these roles has been sending that the, the same message to girls. So that's a good segue for what messages we're sending to boys. Ah, what messages are we sending to boys? So, can you tell us? Yes, um, and I wanna talk a bit about some research we've been doing 
partnering with Promundo, um, they've put together seven pillars of, of how we define masculinity in our culture. Um, the man box, if you will, working, um, building on Paul Keivel's early work. So the seven kind of pillars are how we represent men. Um, we tend to show men uh, and require them to be self-sufficient, so they're expected to be entirely self-reliant. Um, they're expected to act tough. They're expected to be physically attractive but not work on it because it makes you weak or feminized to want uh, to worry too much about your looks. Um, we also expect boys and men to engage in pretty rigid gender roles, right? So men uh, shouldn't be engaging in stereotypical activities. Right. They should be rejecting femininity, uh, such as cooking, cleaning, and caregiving. And in fact, in, in our data, we find that men are less likely to be represented as parents, and they're also less likely to be represented as good parents. And that sends a very powerful message. That's um, not good. Yeah, heterosexuality and homophobia, so being gay or queer is not acceptable, right? That's feminizing um, hypersexuality, that men are supposed to be hypersexual and always looking to have, and, and they're assumed to be you know, heterosexual and, is, and, and always looking um, to be the sexual initiators or instigators, if you will, and then aggression and control, that men are supposed to be in control. And I would argue that you know, all the man box um, is mostly harmful to boys and men. We can talk about its broader cultural impacts on, on girls and women, um, but the man box is really about constraining and limiting boys and men. And so I see my work and in in what I do on masculinity as really being about work for men's liberation. Hmm. Wow. So would you say there's a men's liberation movement coming? There is a men's liberation movement, but that actually means something a little different. Right. They've Maybe already co-opted that, that language, oh, but uh, I'm still okay. on it. Maybe um, a masculinity liberation <laughs> movement? There we go. Um, and so, can I just say, when yeah. we use the term toxic masculinity, right, and there's a debate about yeah. whether or not, you, you know, we should be using this label because some men feel that, uh, or some people feel that it's an attack on men. The very fact that we're using the term toxic masculinity means there are other types of masculinity that are not toxic. Yeah. Um, and boys and men would benefit the most if we were to say, look, you actually don't have to fit the man box. It, it, mm. You don't have to bifurcate your head and your heart. You can be friends with women. You can have close friendships with other men. And in terms yeah, of media just, representation, you can do chores, <laughs> yeah. you, sh you well, can play with dolls. I think all the stuff you're talking talking about is why we came up with this um, and maybe we could talk a little about the background of this this sheet um, so I've been involved with the Center for Scholars and Storytellers for a couple of years now and I love what they do um, and uh, I was at a session where we all broke out into different groups to talk about different subjects one was foster care um, and one was gender roles for boys on uh, and men on TV and our group was had a lot of great conversations about similar things we're talking about what we see on TV what we wish we could see on TV in terms of boys. Um, and the idea came up to ha create sort of this sheet of statistics and suggestions that can, here it is, um, that can be put up, used in lots of ways, but primarily um, for content creators, the idea is we're creating a poster that can be put up in writer's rooms. Um, and some of the things are exactly what you're saying, like here's a suggestion, show boys and girls playing together. Um, and why? Because boys who have female friends are less likely to think of girls as sexual conquests. And then the data that 25.5% reported, uh, men reported that they had committed some form of sexual aggression. And when you really get to the root of that, it's really easy to say, wow, one in four men has, has admitted to engaging in some form of sexual aggression. 
But really, the arrow needs to be at the culture because mm -hmm. if you require boys and men to be sexually in control and the instigators, yeah. uh, and you encourage this behavior, of course you're going to get a stat like that. Yeah. And then number three, which is one of my favorites, show boys doing more chores, um, which I would love to tell my three boys uh, about <laughs> and have them watch a whole TV show about that. Um, but Caroline, maybe you could talk about that article we were talking about earlier about chores and yeah. how important it is. In the New York, the New York Times a few days ago had an article, and the, the headline, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to butcher it a little bit a bit, it was basically that young men, so we're talking about millennial men, um, engage or embrace gender inclusivity, right? They're, they're uh, all about gender equality, but they don't want to do chores. <laughs> and and the, at the end of the day, like that's actually not embracing it. That's giving lip service to gender equality if you're not actually putting the work in. Um, and so what we found, or what the, the research has found along those lines, is that um, girls and women are still engaging in more chores than boys and men. And in fact, if a woman is married to a man in a heterosexual uh, relationship um, with the same number of kids, she will actually do more chores in the home um, than a single woman. Will and so there are definitely some some gender stereotypes that come into play mm -hmm. um, that still make the domestic sphere women's work mm -hmm. right and men simply don't engage in it as much and what we know is millennial men um, don't want to engage in it as much mm -hmm. so how far have we shifted away from those mm -hmm. norms well and that kind of connects I would imagine to men as caregivers as well um, I know you brought it up in the pillars but um, you know it's something I mean I've read articles about fathers being more involved than in the past, and I see it, mm -hmm. um, but it's interesting how I feel like that's something that is taking a while to shift in popular culture. I haven't seen a lot of portrayals of men as caregivers, um, th and I'd love to see more. And there's an anecdote about a, um, another show, uh, not a show I worked on, but some others uh, that I know, some writers I know worked on where um, it's about some characters who take care of babies. And um, creatively, I know they wanted to um, have those characters be men, but the network was like, well, but that's a little, isn't that a little creepy to see men taking care of babies? Oh. And, uh, <laughs> and I think they're it's caretakers like, too. Exactly. They're humans. They're yeah. parents. Yes. Yeah. And and like, is there something weird about boys? And actually, they weren't even men. They were they were boys. They were kid characters. But is it is it weird to see them like wanting to hug and squeeze cute little babies? And and that is really sad to hear that yeah. that would even be uh, an issue. Um, but and that a creative decision would have been made to reject that. Right. That's and the luckily, the creatively. Um, it, the the right way or the way we agree with prevailed and those characters ended up being male but I think there was a lot of debate about that and it, to me it just shows how far we have to go in that one area of mm -hmm. seeing males as caregivers absolutely and if I were a man I would really be pushing back against these stereotypes because that's a perfect example of how they're so limiting right, right. that you want to be able to actually go into whatever sphere you want to go into and I'll just take a step back and say you know the second wave of the women's movement was really great mm -hmm. in that we got a lot of women into the professions in the workforce, but we didn't actually have the same kind of value placed on on caretaking in the home. So mm. while we elevated uh, one type of work, we like did not elevate enough. And we we didn't bring men into the home. Mm. You know, we, we didn't make it okay for men to be caregivers. Mm. And now we're paying the consequence of that now, you know, half a half a century later. But we can shift it. We could actually shift it mm -hmm. overnight if we had media that showed men as caregivers. And that's the power of entertainment media. Not we're working on it. Comedy. What's that? Not only played for comedy. Yes, exactly. Not like the bumbling Mr. Mom. Like there was a whole movie of like how it terrible was called it was Mom, called Mr. It? Mom. It was <laughs> um, for those too young to remember Michael Aww. Keaton as Mr. Mom. But yeah, yeah, and and the the comedy was that he was like inept as yeah. a caregiver. Well, and that's one of the, the tropes or stereotypes yeah. we want to get rid of, right? Which is the the bumbling father, whether it's exactly. Homer Simpson or Mr. Mom. Right. Yeah. You guys. 
So we do have some questions. Um, the first one, submitted by Yolda. And maybe I'll ask this one, because this is for you, Caroline. So Caroline, why does evolving the representation of boys and men matter for girls' representation? Ah, okay, so um, the ways in which we put men in the man box um, actually are harmful for the entire culture, right? Um, and I will just say, I wanna focus specifically on, on boys and men for a moment to talk about, and then talk about the broader impacts. Um, so toxic masculinity is actually a killer, and I really like to think of it in, in stark terms, because if you look at, at what it means for men to be in the man box, um, it literally kills men at higher rates than at, at, at every age than women. So if you think about where the man box leads, we encourage men, to, for example, to engage in high-risk behaviors. Uh, men are more likely to die from driving drunk, from driving too fast, from violence, um, from engaging in dangerous work, from engaging in dangerous activities, all of which is part of the man box and expectations from that. Also self-injurious behaviors, right? Um, the food that we eat and and men being, you know, eating a, a lot of um, protein or animal oh, protein, for example, to be made and rejecting things like veganism or vegetarianism because it's feminized, even though it, you know, it, so men dying at higher rates from heart disease, for example. Um, men being less, um, less connected to other individuals because of the man box, which makes them lonelier and more likely um, to be less healthy, um, lacking close relationships. Also, men don't seek medical treatment at the same rates. Uh, they avoid doctors more than women, and when they do go, they're less likely to follow the regimen. Um, and I think the most profound one, perhaps, is um, the way in which the man box discourages men from seeking mental health, mm. right? Mm -hmm. uh, help when they're in, in crisis. So we know, for example, um, because it, it's seen as making them vulnerable and weak and which violates the norms of the man box. And so men die at, at, uh, from suicide at a rate three times that of women. Um, and of course, all of it is tragic. I'm not meaning to mm -hmm. dismiss women who, who die from suicide, um, but men are simply not getting the help that they need. So what does this mean? It means that 50% of our population um, is feeling the pressure to be less healthy and less happy and, and is constrained in ways that cause them to act out, right? Um, more so than women. So if you look at rates of violence, we know that the man box is really the driver behind that. If you look at, at rates of mass shootings, we know that the man box is, plays a major role in that. And so um, girls and women benefit from better and healthier representations of boys and men um, at an individual level because the men in their lives will feel more freedom and will not feel the need to assert the the, the uh, control that the man box tells them they need to, so on an interpersonal level, but even on a societal level, um, we would live in a much healthier culture if men did not feel the constraints of the man box that they feel. And media can play, as you've pointed out, um, an, an, an instant role in mm -hmm. shifting our perceptions of the man box. Yeah, wow. So it's good for everyone. It is, it, it yeah. is. That's how we get to a, a healthier culture. And I have a question for you, okay, great. Sasha, sure. from Dylan Trupiano. Um, how does gender representation differ in animation and live action? Um, does the degree of separation from reality and additional control in animation actually change the process? That's a great question. Um, I mean, definitely, as an uh, animation creator, we get to um, really make what we want to see. Um, that can go in terms of the characters um, their proportions, their skin tone, how light, how dark. I mean, it's really um, uh, every decision gets, you know, poured over um, on the shows that I work on. Um, and so, I, you know, I haven't worked that much in live action. Um, you know, obviously in live action, you can 
through casting, cast the people that you think are right um, and what you want to see. But one thing that I've been thinking about that's interesting about animation is, um, you know, we can make anything happen. Um, and this leads to actually one of the conversations that um, that we had that brought about this boys tip sheet. Um, and that was with Daphna Lemish, who's an amazing researcher, um, has done a lot of research about um, gender roles and kids TV. And she had this amazing statistic that female characters are two times more likely to use magic to resolve problems. Um, and I thought that was just an interesting thing. And I, I don't know, I'm curious what you think that says. Um, but um, the idea that um, magic can be a way to get out of things um, and to, to not deal with the real world. Um, and it's tricky because we want our shows to be entertaining and we want them to be fun and, and, and exciting. And some of our shows do have magic. But um, we also want kids to take away the tools um, that might help them. Um, a lot of the shows I work on have, if not a strong curriculum, like at least a light curriculum that is focused on social emotional behavior. We want kids to to learn about how to deal with emotions. Um, I'd say on most of the shows I work on, even if the, the, the hard curriculum is about outer space, um, you know, the, there's always a soft curriculum, I, we call it, of, of social emotional behavior. And, um, and that stuff, uh, you know, that's how kids learn is seeing how these characters interact. Um, and if, 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 if the characters can use magic to solve problems, it sort of takes away that learning um, because it makes it much easier than the real world. Mm -hmm. So I, I would need to dig into it further. Yeah. But I, I have thought about this, this question a bit. Um, I think that boys are more likely to be presented as using their bodies and their physical prowess in order to solve problems, whereas mm -hmm. girls are more likely to be given magic in order to do that. So mm -hmm. I think that it's maybe driven by a little sexism, but you bring up a great point. And I, especially looking at your content in Hen Henry Huggle Monster, um, the I was you the social well the social emotional was really yeah. obvious in that yeah. right. So he's running around and he is he is actually not just engaging in social emotional learning and application. Um, he saying it out loud while it's happening. And I'm assuming that that was intentional for the audience Definitely. because they're little. Definitely. No, um, thank you for watching. That was a show that was also on Disney Junior. Henry Huggle Monster was based on a great um, Irish children's book um, by Neve Sharkey, an amazing illustrator and author. And um, and yeah, the, the idea that the, when I came onto the show, the way it was pitched to me was it's it's going to be basically Ferris Bueller for preschoolers. <laughs> and so that was, we. I love that idea. And as um, as the head writer, I really dug into that. And, um, and I felt like, well, if a preschooler was sort of narrating their day, what would they, what would it be like? And it's kind of hilarious if you think about it. Like if you were inside a kid's head, um, it's insane. And, um, and, and it was an opportunity to kind of work out the thought process for all these social emotional behaviors. So for example, um, you know, if two, two of his friends are fighting, um, then he, he can say like, I don't know what's like, turn to us, the audience and be like, I don't know what to do. My friends are fighting. Like, should I talk to them? Should I leave them alone? And, and it was just an opportunity to work out those kind of social emotional issues that preschoolers deal with all the time. Um, but And I'll say thank you because I have a family member who's on the spectrum mm. and that sort of, you know, the play-by-play, -play, mm. he was wrapped as a child looking at it and following along because you were telling him, right? He, he has yeah. an issue reading emotions and, mm. and exuding emotions and so you were telling him what emotions were happening on the screen and then he learned quite a bit from that. So oh, that's great. I'm sure but yeah, that. oh, that's great to hear. Um, but yeah, I think that, um, that the idea of, what's so great about animation is that you 
you can do that stuff um, and and get inside characters' heads in a way that you maybe couldn't in live action. Um, okay, I see a new question. Uh, I'll give this one to you, Caroline. This is from no Noah Morse. Um, can you think of any quintessential examples of male characters or TV shows that embody positive masculinity or push back on gender stereotypes? Why were they successful in doing so? Hmm. So three pop to mind, many more actually, but three kind of really prominent um, characters. The first would be Mr. Rogers, uh, who did something similar to mm -hmm. your Henry, right, where mm -hmm. he is um, actually going through emotions and talking about that process um, and presenting a completely different form of masculinity. Um, and I think it was especially Great. powerful because of the time in which he was doing it, because we weren't actually having these conversations yet. Mm. Um, I would say also Will Hunting from Good Will Hunting. Mm. Um, I view that entire film, and I know it's old now, and I, I'm older now, a couple decades old, um, but I view it through the lens of him having this kind of journey about masculinity mm. and being the tough guy and, and being raised. And there's some class issues there too, right? Uh, being raised in a neighborhood where he wasn't allowed to have emotions or real friendships with men unless they were based around violence and control. And by the end of it, he has this mentor, right, in Robin Williams, mm. who essentially um, gives him permission to be a full human being. And so I watch that film mm. you know, on an annual basis <laughs> because it, it really warms my heart to see a young man kind of being taken through that journey. Um, and then I would say uh, Terry Jeffords, uh, Terry Cruz's character from Brooklyn Nine-Nine, um, mostly because he he physically embodies the man box every in every stereotypical way, right? Mm -hmm. He is a massive man. He is <laughs> ripped with muscle. Um, and yet here he is just being a full human being, whether you know it's uh, somebody who is a caretaker showing emotions or being sensitive. Um, it's the juxtaposition between his physical presentation um, and who he is as a character that I think is so effective. Mm -hmm. And what about you? I mean, this you must have a lot of um, I do. I mean, it's interesting to, what, to me when actors riff on their own personas. So similar to Terry Crews, I, I love Dwayne Johnson and The Rock, and, um, and but I, what I really love is when he um, plays on his like macho wrestler personality, um, and we see that sensitive side, because there is sort of that, um, it just shows like in the tip sheet uh, and what we were talking about that male characters can have different sides to them. Like I love, I love movies where um, he's seen as a father, because he's usually a good father, um, in those movies, and you see this warmth um, that he has. In, I think one of the Fast and Furious movies, you see him with his daughter, and um, and it's just it's just this great, like, I, lo I love an action movie that also has a sensitive uh, moment between a father and a kid. Um, I feel like there aren't that many of them, but I love and it when he, it happens. He does it on purpose. Yeah. I mean, every, every piece of content he he is in or yeah. is producing, you see that kind of the challenge to the hypermasculinity. Yeah. So we appreciate that. <laughs> um, so uh, a question for you um, from Nick Neal. What boys and men in your life have inspired you to push for better male representation in media? That's a great question. Um, definitely starts with my dad. Um, he was uh, a teacher and a musician, and I think um, the arts are definitely a theme for me that keep coming back, but um, his love for music was such a big part of his life um, and defined, in a way, who he was. Um, and that sort of uh, appreciation for and love for the arts um, was connected to, I think, his sensitivity um, and really affected what I want to put in the world. Um, characters, male characters who have that side, that sensitive side, that um, side that can appreciate the arts, that are, are creative. Um, again, it, it sort of 
connects to me going to performing arts school, to me connecting kids and, and the arts. Um, I think it all goes back to that, my dad's love for music. Mm. Uh, I would say that uh, the boys and men who've inspired me to push for better male representation um, are the young men in my lives, um, my students, uh, my nephews, the, the young men I see struggling with something I thought maybe we had fixed a while ago, and then realizing, oh, boys and men still feel these incredible constraints and pressure. Um, you know, something that Jackson Katz talked about um, in Tough Guys, you know, um, 25 years ago when he came out with his documentary. Um, I think it, it's uh, watching them go through these same patterns of behavior. And, you know, I love men. I really love men. Um, the men in my life, especially the young men who are struggling with this, mm -hmm. it's such a point of pain because I think a lot of them feel like they're alone. Like, oh, I'm the only one who is feeling this pressure. And when you have someone who is, uh, you know, running a, a, a group like Ashanti Branch up in Oakland who's running the Ever Forward Club who creates a physical space mm -hmm. for young men to really grapple with the man box and, and what mm -hmm. masculinity means to them. Or media, that like the content you're producing where you provide a space where you're watching it and and it becomes this kind of permission to be fully human. I think it's, it's those moments in the lives of young men that really inspire me to do this work. That's great. Um, and then there's a second part to this question. How can we improve male representation in other forms of media, such as video games? That's a great question. I, I, I don't know a lot about video games, do you? So, I mean, other than playing them, yeah. what? <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so the, at the Gina Davis Institute, we are uh, embarking on um, a the first kind of full uh, scope analysis of yeah. video game content and looking specifically at masculinity. And it's tough to measure what's in video games. Um, we know that it's problematic um, that uh, you know, you're you're in asked to engage in first-person man box behavior, essentially. Um, and so we, we want to know what choices young men make um, when they're playing video games. We want to know what options they have for masculinity when they're playing video games. Um, and, and we do know, you know that there are some effects of this, right? You're less likely, it, it lowers your levels of sensitivity mm -hmm. to violence. Um, but they, it seems like it could effects. be an amazing tool if used well, yes. that and like VR to, if, Imagine being put in the first person and having to make these big decisions um, and like not that this would be a best-selling game But like how to get out of the man box like and and um, really internalize those decisions and and think them through um, I don't know how to do it, but it seems like it could be an incredible tool for that Well, and I think the the gaming industry is actually the next frontier, right? Mm -hmm. So we've gone into kids film kids television mm -hmm. um, We now we've gone into advertising. We've even looked at mascots and looked at sexism and intersectional sexism there but now I think that the gaming industry going into the most popular games and yes creating new spaces and new games for people but getting content creators who are working on this to understand the effects of their work uh, and that they can do it better because I really do believe that content creators get in it like you because they want to have this positive impact uh, it's not just entertainment it's not just a paycheck they want to have some impact in the world and so um, if you demonstrate through data driven advocacy and mm -hmm. and lobbying uh, this is what you're doing and these are the effects. Um, I, I suspect that that's the next frontier. And here's a new question. Speaking of questions, um, this is for Caroline from Anna Yang. What do you think is the most important aspect of the stereotypical male trope that needs to be challenged and how can it be done well? 
Ah, and I like that you said it was for me. I don't see my name on that. No, question. no, you're, it's no, color coded. <laughs> but uh, but I want you to take it anyway because I want to know. I'll turn it back. I okay, well. that's fine. Um, so I I would say the biggest trope is um, the myth that men are violent. Um, I think that's we actually tend to think that men are biologically creatures who are violent, mm -hmm. and there's actually there is no bio data for that. There is no scientific <coughs> data for that. If you unpack something like testosterone, it's actually linked to higher levels of confidence, which is fantastic. Mm -hmm. uh, men are not inherently violent, and we do boys and men an incredible disservice by sending them that message. So I would love to see the trope of men as you know inherently violent creatures challenged, discarded. Um, I think it's interesting when we use violence in ways that are non-gratuitous, um, but it tells us a lot about how to solve problems, both interpersonally and maybe even on a cultural level if you're looking at content about war or conflict. Um, but at the end of the day, yeah, get rid of the violent male trope. Hmm. How about you, Sasha? Um, well, I definitely have some thoughts. Um, there, one of the points on the tip sheet that it, I, has always stuck out as uh, an extremely important one is show boys being more caring with others re regardless of their sexual orientation. Um, I think the trope of like, I don't need anyone, I'm good, like the, the solitary the male, the loner um, who doesn't need companionship, doesn't need support, doesn't need emotional um, just being a, surrounded by someone who can accept their emotions and be and let them be emotional. Um, so th there's this statistic on the tip sheet, more boys than girls report being isolated. Um, boys with close male friendships, however, are less prone to depression and more likely to live longer lives. So that just... There's the effects, the yeah, physical effects of exactly. masculinity, you know, ending your life earlier than it should. Yeah, right. It connects exactly with what you're saying. And this is the tip sheet, right, uh, that is available online. So yep. um, at the site, uh, Center for Scholars and Storytellers website. Um, and again, this is something we've created to uh, 10 research-based insights to change on-screen male stereotypes. And it's for anyone who tells stories, creates content, um, just to give you something to think about. And uh, as you're creating, writing, drawing, um, male characters. And I know we keep talking about this sheet, but mm -hmm. why don't we just quickly run through sure. each of these. So the tips are to show boys and girls playing together, show tough male characters being kind and vulnerable to other men, uh, show boys doing more chores, show boys playing with typical female toys, dolls, and girls playing with typical male toys such as trucks, preferably in the same narrative, and then show boys being caring with others regardless of their sexual orientation. And I want to mention along with that, there's a point that um, too often only gay boys are portrayed as vulnerable and caring and being emotional and kind should not relate to sexuality, which I really agree with. Um, it's definitely a stereotype that I would love to break. Mm -hmm. Do you want to handle six? Sure. So six is show boys talking about love, girls making the first move both romantically and sexually and girls buying flowers for boys happy, Again, happy Valentine's, Valentine's Day uh, show male characters who are proud and accepting of having a primary caregiving role and the responsibilities that come with it it's not creepy it's <laughs> cool um, show more and also just I'm gonna take a, a detour there just as a dad um, going to the playground um, like the other day I was at the playground I have a two two and a half year old boy and I mean it was all dads it was all dads <laughs> literally Yay. it was all dads anyway um, I know that's not every neighborhood every city but um, show more nuanced boy characters not just stock types three-dimensional characters show a wide variety of body types being appealing not just beach bodies 
and show the full spectrum of gender, gender identity. And this is really cool because one of the findings, I think, from the center is that um, Generation Z cares about embracing gender diversity and, and seeing different types of sexuality and gender, and, and that it, that is a positive thing. So let's show it. Yeah, and 56% of uh, Gen Z actually identifies as being something other than male, female, or, uh, or than, than being the binary and hmm. being uh, heterosexual. So and then there's this statistic among all teens in California, 27% identified with some level gender. of gender nonconformity. Yep. It's, uh, yeah, it's a different generation. It's a different time when Facebook has 67 different uh, gender categories instead of two. <laughs> 67? Um, 67. At wow. least that last check, it may have grown. Um, and it's just in terms of the, the parenting, too. I think one of the stereotypes um, that abounds is a really, you know, classist, racist stereotype mm. that men of color somehow uh, are not as good of, of fathers as white men, except the data indicate otherwise, that black men actually spend more time on caretaking um, than men of other races. And so I just really want to kind of burst all of the stereotypes yeah. about parenting and fatherhood because they're simply needle. not yeah. true. Yep. Uh, so a question for you from Joshua Beza. Um, Sasha, have you or anyone you know received any negative feedback from the ge general audience about your representation of boys and men in your work, whether that representation is positive and negative? Hmm. And how have you responded to that feedback? That's a great question. You know, I, I, I can't really think of any anything negative that's come out of it. I mean, you know, so much of our audience is under four years old, so they can't tell <laughs> us. But, um, but, but, um, they're not tweeting at you yet. Not yet. Uh, we definitely do have some parents, which is great. I mean, I, I think that, um, what I hope for with the shows I make is that, that they're co-viewed, um, that, you know, and we know that a lot of parents use TV as a babysitter. I do. Um, but I think when, um, when parents can watch with kids, it's so much more impactful because they can talk about what's going on on the TV. They can um, say, look, oh, look how the mom's the captain. Isn't that, you know, like just point things out that um, kids might, that might go by, especially the younger kids. So I don't know. I'll, I'll, I'll come, come back to you if, we, if we're still talking and I think of anything negative. I, I mean, there's definitely things people haven't liked um, that I've made and will continue to not like. But, um, but I think overall, uh, I haven't gotten any negative feedback. Um, you know, I, I've, I've definitely gotten some positive feedback, similar to some of the things we were talking about. Um, for example, about the, the Loretta character in Miles from Tomorrowland, who is a scientist. We had, uh, there was a great tweet um, by a dad who said, uh, check it out, thanks to Miles from Tomorrowland, my daughter asked for a telescope for for mm. her birthday, and that was like, mission accomplished, there we've it done it, yeah. Yep. Um, well, and that reminds me of the study we did with the Gina Davis Institute mm. in archery, right? So mm. there was this huge increase oh, yeah. in, in archery, uh, girls who were uh, signing up for archery in uh, 2012, and so we were scratching our heads, and you know, Gina uh, was uh, on her way to the Olympics for archery, <laughs> this incredible athlete, and as well as a, an Academy Award-winning actor, um, and all of the things, activist, uh, humanitarian, so obviously a great deal of love and respect for her. Um, so she looked at this and said, well, let's do a study. What happened in 2012? And what we found was that uh, Princess Merida in Brave came out in 2012 and Katniss Everdeen in The Hunger Games came out, the first Hunger Games. And so um, we saw this dramatic increase in girls who wanted to take up archery. And that just a clear example of the impact of media on the lives of young people. Um, another question for you from Zuri Smith. 
Uh, how have you used experiences in your own life to diversify characters in prominent children's TV shows? And what are the most important takeaways that you want your audiences to grasp from the shows that you create? Hmm. Those are great questions. Um, definitely the experience of going to an arts high school and the arts having such a big role in my life um, have affected everything I do. Um, so not only getting into the arts, but showing characters who, um, who, who do art, who make things, who create things. And I think that also comes from being someone who likes to make things um, and who always, even though I make TV, always worries about the negative effects of TV, of watching too much TV, of stunting creative growth and all that. Um, and that sort of leads to the next question, which is um, one of the biggest takeaways is I want kids, after watching the shows, to go out and make their own things. Mm. I want kids to be inspired to, to tell their own stories. Um, How do you put that in the storyline? I'm curious. That's a great question. It's it's not always easy, um, but um, we show, we often have characters, I've, I've had a lot of shows with um, where characters make puppet shows or they create um, their own story. An episode of Henry Hoggle Monster that I'm really proud of is about a bunch of characters who, uh, the, a bunch of friends who love this comic book and it's it's um, it's like a it's like a cliffhanger, like every episode, every issue is the next episode kind of of the story and they're waiting, they don't know what's gonna happen next at the end of this one story and they're, the, the comic book's supposed to come out so they all go to the newsstand. I guess people used to buy comics at newsstands <laughs> maybe. I don't know, they go to the newsstand to get the comic and and there's a, there's a problem, the comic shipment is delayed it's not coming for a week and they're like, what are we gonna do what are we gonna do how are we gonna know how this ends what are we gonna do and Henry being the resourceful kid says why don't we make up our own ending and so the rest of the episode is them acting out their own ending to the story and the goal of that is to show kids like you don't need us to make these stories mm -hmm. yeah hopefully you're enjoying them and you're taking something from them but what we really want to do is inspire you to tell your own stories mm, that's incredible I wish we had some research on the effects of that I'd love to hear what it was <laughs> Okay. So, uh, so this is a question for you, Caroline. This is from Jim. Oh, it says um, for oh, both. It is Sasha. for both of us. I'm not passing both. the buck. Um, <laughs> how can we get to the point where we move beyond numbers and get to the deeper questions like changing gender tropes, like girls using magic to solve problems? You've been listening. Um, that's a great question. All right, let's start with that. Well, and and the the follow up, right? That how do we get policy people and funders and I, yeah. I, I, to take this seriously. Yeah. Um, so I think the good news is that we now have enough data so that people are taking this seriously mm -hmm. because it's actually a public health crisis. Mm -hmm. So if you look at, at the, the health effects of the man box and you look at the health effects also on the other side of girls and women who are taught that their bodies are their primary form of value um, and so they you know engage in what we call self-objectification which is seeing your body as a, a sex object that's linked to eating disorders um, higher rates of depression um, higher rates of suicidal ideation lower confidence levels lower political efficacy which is a belief that your voice matters in politics and less civic engagement and so we know that um, um, that rigid gender roles are a public health crisis mm -hmm. because they have profound effects on our health and well-being. And we can quantify this in terms Mental of numbers. Mental health and physical health. Absolutely. Yeah. Mental and physical health. And as a result of that, policymakers are paying attention. So for example, Jennifer Siebel Newsom, who's the first partner of California, just started a new organization, her C4, uh, led by Olivia Morgan. And they are looking specifically at the effects of media as a public health mm -hmm. issue, wow. media and gender as a public health issue. They're not the only ones. They're researchers all over the United States who are um, working on this and advocating at the state level to pass policies mm. around media to make media content more positive. Um, I think that in probably, I'm guessing in 10 to 15 years, 
uh, sort of the way we view, you know, um, unhealthy, unclean air mm. uh, as being a, a, an environmental and health crisis, we will view um, really negative media content as also a public health crisis because the outcomes are quantifiable, um, they take lives, they cost money, um, and we all pay for it as taxpayers, and we all pay for it in terms of our society not being um, as healthy as it could be. And then on, on my side of things, um, it's this, uh, it's a start. I mean, it's it's a piece of paper, but our hope is that it gets out there and it, and it gets content creators to really think about these things and make changes um, and start conversations that need to happen like this one. Mm -hmm. And if folks want to really get involved with shifting this, um, you can certainly uh, support the nonprofits that are doing research in this area. Um, Martha Lausen is doing research at the, in Sandy at SDSU uh, at the Center for the Study of Women in Film and Television. Darnell Hunt here at UCLA. Stacy Smith in the Annenberg Initiative, and of course uh, the Gina Davis Institute and the Representation Project that is really pushing for this. And then also the Center for Scholars and Storytellers, which has been an amazing resource for me um, and something I tell all of the people I work with about because um, I, I, I love research. <laughs> um, not everyone who writes creative things does, but like I said, um, what I do I really think of as a mix of art and science, and I think the art informs the science and the science informs the art, and um, thank you for all the research you're doing because it reminds me why we're doing it. It reminds me why we're telling stories and trying to move the needle in terms of representation. Well, and thank you for creating the content because this is why we're doing it together, right? This partnership between academics and content creators, essentially. Yeah, and I think it's an attitude thing, too. There, there, I've definitely worked with writers who felt like, well, I don't, I, I just need to be free and be creative. Like, I don't want any researchers telling me what to do. Um, but to me, that's not the right way to look at it. I think it's, um, it's, it doesn't have to be proscriptive. Like that's not what this is. It's it's just giving you more tools in your toolbox and giving you a bigger context. Because the stories we create, um, they're not in a vacuum. They're created in this world where things are always changing and there are so many um, depictions of characters that came before the things we're making and, and they all have, have, have enough impact on us. Right. We have one last question which just came in and it was so good we were going to let you end it. Great. But, um, we thought we'd ask it because I'm curious. Okay, <laughs> so this is from Angelina Volucci. Do you think the dominance of superhero comic book movies in popular culture over the past few years has increased body image anxiety in men? Absolutely. So we're not only seeing it from uh, these blockbuster films, uh, we're also seeing it in terms of advertising. So all of the pressure that girls and women have had for so long uh, in popular culture to be you know, unreasonably uh, unhealthily thin and beautiful and attractive and that that's your primary value, um, we're certainly now seeing that push for boys and men, um, which is a shame because you know, if there's one thing we don't want to spread, it's body hatred and shame that most women feel. We don't want that spreading to men. Uh, but I do believe you know, that's a great question, Angelina. Uh, and it's, it's certainly the case that boys and men are feeling more pressure. We know that simply by speaking with them about it. But if we could sh make that a part of these comic book movies, it could be really interesting. I mean, again, it's like if we can somehow get these conversations, not particularly, not specifically answers, but these conversations into those movies, I think it's so interesting because then it can lead to more discussion and debate and thought about it. And Sasha, you bring up this great double-edged sword, right? Media, we've mostly spoken about it as being a negative force, but also it's an incredibly positive force where overnight you could just create different worlds mm -hmm. and those could be the worlds in which your imagination lives and that's the first step in actually getting there. 
Hi guys. Hello. Nice to see you again. That hour like flew by. Seriously, oh, you were thanks. both so great, so professional. Thank you. Um, I'm Dr. Yelda T. Ools. I founded the Center for Scholars and Storytellers, created this incredible tip sheet with the help of both researchers, scholars, and storytellers. Um, we are so glad you tuned in. We're very, very grateful to both of you. You did an amazing job. So thank you. And you, any last comments? Happy St. Valentine's yes, Day. Happy Valentine's Day. And we're Day. out. That concludes this episode of the Scholars and Storytellers podcast. A very special thanks to Dr. Caroline Heldman and Sasha Palladino for joining us in that conversation. If you have a minute, rate and review us. And if you have any friends who you think would like the show, share it with them. If you're interested in learning more about our work, please visit us at scholarsandstorytellers.com and follow our social media accounts by searching Center for Scholars and Storytellers. This podcast was produced by the Center for Scholars and Storytellers with special thanks to Jim Ools for creating the intro music, the UCLA Film School, and Nier Liebenthal. Goodbye for now, and thank you for listening.